anyone who's ever trained with a group of people will know that you can have a bunch of people who do all the same workouts and seem to be in the same shape and doing the same things. But in a competitive situation, some of them will be able to push themselves way, way, way harder than others. And those are the people who end up winning the races and, and getting the most out of themselves. And so I think that's the kind of skill that it's harder to quantify or, or just give an exact recipe on how to develop. And that's what the book explores is how do you push as close as possible to your limits? Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. This episode was previously recorded and published on the Outperform podcast. Today's quote is from ultramarathoner Dean Karnazes, and it is, run when you can, walk if you have to, crawl if you must, just never give up. Our guest today, Alex Hutchinson, knows a thing or two about running and never giving up. In addition to having competed as a middle and long distance runner for the Canadian national team, he's also the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. Alex, welcome. It's great to be talking with you today. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Well, to start us off, tell us a little bit about what type of runner you are. I'm a middle distance runner, which means when you hear about like hardcore runners, you assume they're running marathons or, or ultra marathons or whatever the case may be. I will make the claim and the case that you can be just as serious a runner running, you know, 5Ks as marathons and you can pack all the suffering of 26 miles into 3.1 miles if you, if you so choose. So, um, yeah, I, I was a competitive like a, a miler and a 5k runner in college and beyond. And, uh, these days, you know, I'm in my four, uh, early forties. Now I run mostly 5k's, 8k's, 10k's, that kind of thing. I have run a marathon just for the record, but, uh, mostly I, I kind of like the, you know, 15 minutes is a good time efficient form of suffering to me. I'm scared to ask, but what's your 5k time? My best time back in the day, uh, which was what was the day? The day was about 15 years ago. Uh, I ran 13.52 for 5K. Wow. Well, that's about a third of what, what I do. So I, I have a room for improvement. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what got you into running uh, in the first place? I've been a runner most of my life. I think my first cross-country race was in you know grade three in elementary school. I was on the cross-country team, not every year, but throughout in high school. I, I started to get more serious when I was about 15 and started training you know year-round. And... Uh, kind of got hooked. For me, it was uh, probably initially a competitive outlet. I ran because I was good at it and I liked competing hard. And it was only sort of over the course of, of time and of years that it became something that I did not to compete, but because I, I enjoyed it. In fact, it took, it was probably not until I had a serious injury in my early twenties and couldn't run that I realized, oh, actually I kind of miss running. It's, it's no longer something I just, I'm just suffering through in order to compete. It's actually something I do every day that's a, a real part of my routine and, and, and that, you know, has all sorts of mental and physical wellness benefits. And do you have a favorite place that you like to run? Yeah, it's, you know, so the, not to give you my whole life story here, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm talking to you from Toronto. I'm talking to you from the study in the house where I grew up. So I, about four years ago, or maybe three years ago, my wife and I moved back to Toronto and the timing was good. My parents were ready to downsize and move to a condo. So I'm living in my childhood home, which is the place where I first uh, started to run. So the Humber River, which is about 
a block and a half from my house has about, you know, 20, 30 miles of trails in either direction from me. No traffic lights. It's just a beautiful wooded ravine with deer and, and other wildlife down there. So that's where I started running when I was 15. And that's where I run most days today. And it's just like, I've lived in a lot of different places and I've run it and I've had, so I've had a lot of temporarily favorite running routes, but none of them matches this. But basically for farther than I can run, I, I will not hit a traffic light. That's nice. And, you know, depending on the time of the day, I may not see many, many people at all. So, and it's very peaceful. And I've, I've come to appreciate the, the importance of natural spaces too, in, in my outlook and my, just sort of my general sense of well-being. Interesting. Yeah. I, I wish I had quieter places to run, but I'm, I'm in more of a uh, uh, urban suburb. Yeah. You can't just choose to live in the middle of the wilderness just so you have quiet runs. So there's always trade-offs. And I've had, I've had great places to run. And you know, I lived in New York for a while and Central Park is great. Big cities like Washington DC are great. One thing I will say is that every place I've lived, and I've, I don't know, lived in a dozen places, ever since Google Maps came on the scene, I would always, when I was moving to a new place, I would get on Google Maps and try and get a sense of, okay, I know I want to triangulate between where I'm going to be either, you know, going to school or working, where there's decent shopping and where there's some green spots on the map so that I can find places to run because you can be strategic about these things. Yeah. Well, you know, congrats on all the success of your book, Endure. I really... I really enjoyed it. And it came at an interesting time for me. I, I was finishing my own book and was working on sort of a chapter on on mental versus uh, emotional endurance and also was getting ready to do this 24-hour overnight uh, bike ride from London to Paris. So it was very interesting reading the theories that you had and then, and then playing around with that. So the book is about, you know, our ability to increase our endurance. I'd, I'd love to Based on the research, just at a high level, how, how should someone first go about thinking about that or, or about actually taking the steps to increase their endurance? That's a great question. And I think I'm going to answer it in a couple of different ways. So it's specific to the task you're, you're thinking about. And if, if we're talking strictly about you know, physical tasks, let's say it's biking for 24 hours, one thing I really wanted to make sure I emphasize when I talk about the book, because the, the book is mostly about the mental aspects of endurance, uh, which is, I think, a very broad, a very broadly applicable idea that when you're pushing to your limits, whether you're pushing to your limits, you know, whether you're trying to push yourself, whether it's in a marathon or in the context of a, a worker, a you know, professional or personal situation, that there's a lot of commonalities in what it takes to push your limits and to push through to another level. However, I'm very wary of seeming to say that it's all in your head and that, you know, if you want to bike for 24 hours, you just have to be tough. So first step zero in improving your endurance is like, if it's a physical task, it's improving your physical endurance. It's getting stronger. It's getting fitter. It's doing the training. There's no like mental shortcut around the physical obstacles that, that you're going to encounter. Once you've done that, then there's still a whole lot of role for learning to push yourself, learning whatever with whatever physical fitness you've gained or physical endurance you've gained, then it's still a question of how much are you going to be able to squeeze out of yourself. And I think that's where you see big differences between people. Anyone who's, so I, I come from a running background, as, as you sort of mentioned, anyone who's ever trained with a group of people will know that you can have a bunch of people who do all the same workouts and seem to be in the same shape and doing the same things. But in a competitive situation, some of them will be able to push themselves way, way, way harder than others. And those are the people who end up winning the races and, and getting the most out of themselves. And so I think that's the kind of skill that it's harder to 
quantify or, or just give an exact recipe on how to develop. And that's what the book explores is how do you push as close as possible to your limits? And it took a whole book to talk about it. But if there was one simple thing to say, I would say making yourself uncomfortable and getting used to that is the best way of getting better at being uncomfortable and learning to tolerate that sort of discomfort. Let me ask you something, because we, we, I don't think you talked about this in the book, but it's something I've talked about a lot. And so if being uncomfortable is so important, how does that fly in the face of a lot of the, what, you, what you see? Maybe you've looked into this or not, but the kind of helicopter parenting these days, which is really about making people more comfortable and removing obstacles. Are we, is that showing up in, in, in sports or aspects of records in terms of endurance? Do you have any thoughts on that? I have thoughts. I, you know, I don't know if I can back them up with science, but I'll tell you, every time I talk to a, one of my old coaches, you know, people who've been coaching athletes for 20, 30 years, especially younger athletes, high school athletes or university athletes, they have a lot of thoughts about this. And, and of course, we're, we're all potentially guilty of the, you know, back in my day, kids were tough yeah. and we used to, you know, the uphill both ways and all that sort of stuff. But I, I've heard from a lot of different people that kids are or have a lot more trouble handling unexpected adversity that if, if everything's going right that you know they're that you know they've been going to their various extracurriculars since they were two years old and and are well trained and smart and and creative but but handling the unexpected handle and handling it on their own is a challenge and and they're they're constantly looking for much more support from other people and and i don't mean to make this sound too negative because of course Drawing on your community and, and your family and your friends and, and looking for support from other people is great. It's much better than, you know, suffering in silence. But I do think in order to really be able to develop those skills, you know, that resilience, that ability to handle the unexpected, you have to like fail sometimes. You have to be thrown yeah. curveballs that you can't hit. And, and that's how you learn to get a little better at it. Well, we had a speaker actually on, on the podcast, Eric Kaptulik, and and who did some training for our our company last week. And he has this phrase, which he said to our whole company, he said, look, it's not kids these days. He's like, there's nothing wrong with the kids. He, he does a lot of training. He says, it's the parents I don't like. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're the problem. It's not the, it's not the kids, you know, the parents are the ones, you know, setting the rules and not holding them accountable. So I, I think it's an interesting perspective on sort of where that resonates from. But one of the things you and I did debate via, via email, as I was kind of asking this question, I was trying to solve something about where to put this chapter in my in my book, but this chicken and egg thing of of physical and emotional resilience, like which which comes first? Like, do we need to physically do something? We need we can do. Do we need to sort of emotionally break through to get there physically? I, I, it's a very fine line, but I know you, you you had some sort of thoughts on this, and we know it's a virtuous cycle. But which wheel spins first? Yeah, I mean, I think probably it depends a little bit on the person, right? Look, there there may be some people who are, you know, strong as an ox, but, you know, scared of the least bit of discomfort. And there may be other people who are mentally tough, but not fit. So there may be, there, there may be differences. But to me, it's easier to challenge yourself physically. Like, if, if I want to challenge myself physically, all I have to do is sign up for the local 5k and, and see how fast I can run it. Challenging yourself mentally or emotionally is, is, a, is a much more complicated thing. And, and there's, in, in a sense, much more kind of self-esteem at stake. And, and how do you, there, what is the generic, like, challenge, you know, like, get your girlfriend to dump you? Like, that, 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 <laughs> the, the, it's much harder to standardize that sort of challenge. Whereas there's this easily accessible world of physical challenges that is going to test you. And it's going to come along with some mental or emotional challenge as part of the package. But but it happens in this very separate area. If you, if you don't run a good 5K, it doesn't mean you're a bad husband or a bad 
coworkers. So you can kind of compartmentalize it, use it as a sort of test area to develop these skills and then apply them in the rest of your life. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, so one of the things that you write about in the book is how science has evolved from thinking that your body has absolute physical limits to the brain acting more as the regulator to either shut things down or keep it going. So it's a perfect combination of these two. Can you talk more about what you found in the research in that and some of the examples you found of that? Yeah, it's. I mean, again, as, as a runner, you're always thinking about why can't I go faster or what's holding me back? And And I was, as a guy who was curious about this stuff, I was always reading books to try and understand whether, you know, is it my VO2 max? Is it my leg muscles? Is it my strength? Is it my heart? You know, my cardiovascular system? What is it that I need to improve in order to get faster? And in a sense, what I've, what I've sort of realized in, in retrospect is that there's this whole paradigm of the body as a machine that just like a car, you can understand, you know, when the car runs out of gas, that's when the car stops and that there should be some sort of analog in humans that when we run out of a certain type of fuel or when our heart rate is ticking over at its maximum rate, that those are the limits. And and that was basically the, what the 20th century was all about from a physiology perspective. There was huge progress in understanding all the parts of the machine, but there was also the realization that that somehow is still not the whole story. You can know everything about your physical parameters and still not know who's going to win a race. So in the last 20 years, there's been a, a push to sort of say, well, if you want to understand limits, you can't just sort of tack on the brain as an afterthought. You have to understand how the mind and the body are interacting together to define your limits. And so there's been a ton of research and that the overall message, and it's still very controversial, so I want to acknowledge that, that it's not like anyone agrees that we have the final answer. But the overall message that I get from the research is that the ultimate thing that matters most when you're pushing your limits or that defines your limits is your perception of how hard something is. So it's not that there's one particular signal that says, that's it, you're done. You know, your heart rate is at this point or your breathing rate is at that point or your body temperature is at that point and that signals you're done. Instead, it's how your brain interprets all those different signals. And the reason that's important is because if the ultimate dictator of endurance is your perception of effort, that means there are other things sort of above the neck that can affect your perception, like your mindset. And so that's when, where some of these concepts that are popular these days come in and can be quantified. And you can say, look, change the words in someone's head, change them from negative self-talk to positive self-talk, and we can measure the improvement in their endurance and the difference in their perception of effort as a result of those things. So you take someone who's very skeptical like me as sort of like, I want to quantify everything before I believe it. And you do those, you show them those sorts of studies and you say, okay, now I believe that all those motivational talks that I ignored when I was you know, 22 and thought I knew everything about physiology. Now I'm like, oh, that's real. That wasn't just kind of like a, a nice idea. There's real physiology behind the idea that your perception and your mindset really matters. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. 
I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. You had some great examples of that in the book, including, you know, when the four mile mark fell, suddenly more people started to do it over the next few years, presumably because they knew it was doable, or also how runners somehow seemed to find in the last lap or the last mile, this energy, when they didn't think they had anything left, they're able to pull out something in the last mile because they know it's the, it's the end. So is that, is that sort of aligned to that? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the four minute mile is definitely the uh, paradigmatic example of of a a barrier that was certainly physical in some ways, but was also mental. So that for thousands and thousands of years, no one's ever run a four minute mile. In 1954, Rogers Bannister finally does it. And six weeks later, someone else does it. And, you know, the next year, a few other people do it. It's it's not like the dam broke and all of a sudden everyone can do it. It's still hard. And I say that as a guy who's my personal best for 1500, which is the metric equivalent of the mile, is officially equivalent to four minutes, 0.02 seconds for the mile. So that that's a barrier that I, I, I was always trying to break. And I didn't, you know, so I, I have a lot of respect for the, the four minute mile barrier. But there was definitely some degree of this idea that uh, once you know someone can do it, then others are willing to set their sights at that point. But the thing you raise about the pacing, I think is even more fascinating, to be honest. It's this is that if you go to any local road race and watch stand at the finish line, you'll see all these people kind of jog around the corner, see the finish line and then start sprinting. And you're like, ah, oh, dude, you know, you could have run harder the whole way. You look at all that energy you had left. You feel like it's a pacing error. But then you do an analysis of the pacing in world records, like every world record at distances like 5K and 10K over the past century. And you see that everyone did that. They all sped up in the last kilometer the greatest runners in the in history on the greatest day of their lives. And that shows you that it's not a pacing error. These guys are the best. It's something deeply wired in us that you can't, there's some, there's some energy in there that you can't access until when you're not sure how far you still have to go. And once you get close to the end, you know, okay, the danger's passed, then you're able to dig into that. And so that one of the sort of great challenges then is learning to access those reserves before you get to the finish line, so, rather than just leaving it to the, the, the final sprint. 
So is there something in that about if you're if you're designing something's hard to do, right? Like if you have a hilly course that you should run the downhill first so that your your mind gets confident before or, or rather than doing the hardest <laughs> part first? Like is it if it's about the perception of what's ahead, should don't you want to sort of start with a with a good feeling rather than starting with a bad feeling? Yeah, or or instead of maybe trying to trick yourself, one of the I think really powerful things is to get familiar with the course. So wherever the ups and downs are, the, the the turns, the more familiar you are with them, the less your brain is trying to protect you from the unknown. And I think not, you know, not to get too metaphorical here, I think that's something that can be uh, generalized to other areas of life, which is that we tend to be most worried about the unfamiliar. And that's when you're going to be most cautious, uh, you know, often for good reason. If you don't know what's coming, it's a good idea not to be totally spend all your money uh, without knowing when the next paycheck comes. But in a racing context, if you can jog the course, if you can walk the course, if you can look at the course map, you can run the course in advance, the more familiar with it you are, and there's some research that shows this, the better you're able to push, the more you're able to sort of lay it all out there because you know exactly how far you still have to go. So I think that's maybe the the practical message to take from that. What's a situation where your resilience was put to the test? In other words, what is your endure moment? Yeah, this, well, in some sense, like every race I ever stepped to the line, you, you have a point where you're pushed to your limit. But the one that sort of jumps to mind for me is maybe r- really one of the hardest things I had to face. Uh, I don't know, like it makes my life sound easy, but one of the hardest things that I had to deal with was that I, I got a stress fracture in my lower back and it was three months before the 2004 Olympic trials. And I had more or less put my life on hold for, you know, I, so I was, I made the Olympic trials in 1996 as a 20 year old and, you know, as a young hopeful and I thought I would have a lot more chances. Then I had a bad knee injury four years later and I missed the 2000 Olympic trials. And I had to make a sort of big decision after 2000 of, do I sort of get on with my life and just do other things? Or do I try and come back from this injury and, and take another crack in 2004? And I decided to take another crack and try and come back in 2004. And so I spent those four years building up to that moment and finally was in probably the best shape of my life in early 2004. And yeah, three months before the Olympic trials, I, I was running a 10 mile race and about seven miles into it, I heard a little crack and, and it was uh, my sacrum, which is a bone in, in the lower back uh, snapping. So that was the bad part. So then the question is, how do you respond to that to that bad thing other than, you know, uh, crying? <laughs> and at that point, I knew I wasn't going to make the Olympics. Like there's no path back to the Olympics. It's probably the recommended recovery is 10 weeks of no running at all. And I'm 12 weeks out from the Olympic trials. So I'm not going to make the Olympics. And what I decided that I wanted to do is to, and I knew this would be the end of my really serious running career, but I decided that I wanted to, go out fighting and go out running a race that I could be proud of and and not just sort of give up in the face of adversity. So during those 10 weeks that I couldn't run, I probably trained harder than I have ever trained at any point before or since in my life. I did a couple of hours of pool running in, in uh, every morning. Now, pool running, for those who've had the, the good fortune of never to encounter it, it's basically you get in the water and you assume, instead of swimming, you assume a running motion because, and so you're basically dog paddling, uh, going nowhere. So it's extremely boring, but it duplicates the motion of running. So it's the most efficient form of cross training for running. So I was doing that for 90 minutes to two hours every morning and doing it hard. 
and then in the afternoon coming back and going on the elliptical of the exercise bike for another 30 to 60 minutes. Really, really mentally tough. But as a result, even though even with 10 weeks of no running, I maintained my aerobic fitness. I came out of the pool and started jogging about two weeks before the Olympic trials. And I went to the Olympic trials and I made it out of my semifinal and qualified for the final. And I think I came ninth, if I'm remembering correctly, which had improved on my, when I was, when I was a young gun in, uh, in, in 1996, I had come tw- uh, 11th, I think. So I improved by two spots. On it. And so anyway, long story short, it was an extremely challenging situation for me. It was sort of the end of my life stream, but I'm really proud of the way I, I responded to it and was able to walk out and say, yeah, I was an Ol- Olympic trials finalist one more time. All right, Alex, that was an incredible story. One more question before we take a break related to that. But I've been curious about the concept of emotional endurance. You know, you mentioned before getting outside of your comfort zone. Is there a similar process to sort of physical training that people can follow to increase their emotional endurance um, that's more systematic? Or is it really about just getting yourself out there? Yeah, I mean, there's been a bunch of really interesting research trying to understand how people build tolerance to discomfort and you know it's a complicated area and there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on but there's some really interesting evidence to show that the more you suffer in training the better you get at suffering and so the better your performance becomes and the better your ability to tolerate other forms of discomfort so there's like neat studies where they design a training program that two or two training programs that give you exactly the same physical results but do it either in a way that requires like really intense, painful, uncomfortable exercise, or that's pretty just sort of relaxed and and like takes longer, but it's not no discomfort. And you get the same physical changes in fitness, but the people who do the uncomfortable training perform better and are able to also do better at transferring that ability to other tasks. So that they'll do like ice bucket tests or whatever to assess their ability to handle other forms of discomfort. And it does transfer. So to me that what that tells me, is that, yeah, it's kind of a direct res- result of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. And that that's not, uh, one thing to clarify is that it's not that you like dull your nerves or anything like that, that you don't feel the pain anymore. What that helps you do is develop psychological coping tactics. So you're you're able to distract yourself from discomfort or to reframe challenging inputs in a more sort of emotionally neutral way. That's to use the the sort of jargon of mindfulness to to be non-judgmentally aware of like, yeah, my legs hurt right now, but that doesn't mean I have to panic or anything like that. It's just a signal telling me that I can't go on forever. So I think the most effective thing you can do, as opposed to trying to come up with, you know, a magic mantra or anything like that, is just to make sure you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone on a regular basis and experience that and accept that and kind of embrace that uh, so that you'll get better at it. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a corporate uh, analogy to that. I was at a leadership training session last year with a friend of mine who's a uh, Connor Neal from, uh, well, he's Irish, but he lives in Spain and he, he teaches a public speaking session. And it was a very hurried session where he gave people limited instructions and asked them to prepare these speeches and get ready in a couple hours. And everyone was freaking out and fighting him on and saying they didn't understand <laughs> the instruction. And he said, you know, he got up in front of everyone, told him to sit down and said, look, 
My job is to make the practice really, really hard so that when you have to give an impromptu speech or someone asks you to do this or whatever, it's, it's not a big deal. We want the practice to be harder than reality. And, you know, the whole room stopped and everyone then went back to work and delivered great speeches. But I, I you know, he said something that a lot of people kind of know, but don't internalize, which is like, of course, you'd want practice to be harder than than reality. That, that way, as you said before, it's, it's, it's about versus your expectations of how hard it will be. Exactly. And I had a sort of similar experience with, um, there's this idea called of brain endurance training that you can run a better marathon by systematically building your, your brain endurance. And there's ways of doing that. You can set up these like cognitive tasks on a computer where you're just sitting there for an hour or 90 minutes tapping away at a keyboard based on what shows up on the computer screen and it builds your mental endurance. And there's some interesting studies from the British military actually showing that this enhances your physical endurance too. That, that Again, showing the tight connection between sort of mental and physical endurance. But anyway, I was trying this out for a Runner's World article. I was going to do 12 weeks of brain endurance training uh, before running a marathon. And I, I, you know, I was supposed to be working up to like an hour or 90 minutes a day. And my first session, I, it was like five minutes or I was doing, you know, I was doing five minutes at a time of these little games. And I, I emailed the the researcher and I was like, it's okay, right? Instead of doing like a 15 minute session of one of the games, I did five minutes each of each of the three games, because otherwise it's just too damn boring. And he emailed me back and he said, no, that's not okay. The whole point is they're supposed to be hard. Don't find ways of making them easier. You're doing this thing that's supposed to be hard to train you for doing hard things. You should be seeking opportunities of making it hard. And, and he made the same point about, hey, if you have a long day at work, don't cry that your workout after work is hard to say, this is great. This is extra mental training to, you know, having to get through the mental fatigue while I do my workout rather than just everything feeling easy. Because... The more things feel easy in training, that doesn't prepare you for the reality of how hard it is when you're actually trying to perform. No, absolutely. All right, we will be right back with Alex after this quick sponsor break. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Adam Grant, and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com slash 10 off and get 10% off your subscription. So speaking of Helio, Alex, the team included uh, their yearbook, Endure, in their book club selection earlier this year, and Malcolm Gladwell actually gave it a, a rave review and wrote the introduction. I heard you tell an interesting story about how you came to know and became friends with Malcolm, and I'd love it if you could share it with us today. Yeah. First of all, I was exceptionally lucky and exceptionally grateful to Malcolm for uh, for the support he gave to the book. Um, and it's kind of a funny story the way we first interacted. I, he had written a piece, I think it was in The New Yorker, uh, sort of questioning the whole anti-doping in sports paradigm and thinking about the concept of enhancement in sport and raising some questions, I guess, in the way that, that Malcolm likes to do. And I wrote a piece uh, I wrote a piece first in Runner's World, and then I wrote another an op-ed in the New York Times, 
where, where I kind of, I quoted from that piece and kind of called him out on it. And he actually emailed me. And I saw, I was like, wow, there's an email from Malcolm Gladwell in my inbox. And I was like, oh man, he's going to be pissed. I didn't think he, he would ever actually see what I wrote, but it was the, totally the, the, exactly how I would hope I will, I would respond to anyone disagreeing with something I'd written. He was interested. He wanted to clarify his position, find out what more about what my position was. And we exchanged some emails just talking about it. It was totally, it was great. Like it was because he's raising questions and I'm, and I'm, I too was, was sort of raising my own questions about his questions. And after that, we kind of kept in touch, not super regularly, maybe a couple times a year, we would exchange thoughts because we're both big track fans. And, and so we have some, some real common interests. And of course I'm a I'm a big fan of his of, of his writing and have been for, gosh, I guess almost twenty years. But uh, anyway, the, the story sort of goes on in that. I guess a couple years ago, or must be three three years ago, something like that. He was giving a talk in Toronto at the University of Toronto, and a friend of mine was going, and he said, "Oh, you should come, and and I can get you in." So I I was able to go see this this talk of his, and afterwards. I went up and just said hello, and I said, "Hey, Malcolm, you know what? My friends and I are doing. We we do a regular, a kind of hard run every Saturday morning in this cemetery in Midtown Toronto. If you're looking for running company when you're in town, come and join us. Nine fifteen, and you know, at the tombstone to the left of the door or whatever. <laughs> and uh, you know, he did. He came and ran with us, and it, you know, it was a lot of fun. He's obviously he's an amazing runner. He's like a five minute miler in his fifties. That sort of cemented the connection. So so then, I I decided to screw up the courage and, and just say, uh, Hey, any chance you'd be willing to take a look at my book? And, and he was totally gracious. So it all comes of, uh, you know, the, the moral of the story is criticize Malcolm Gladwell in print and, and good things may happen. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Well, I think it's also it's a good example of sort of being authentic, but then being respectful, right? I mean, you 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 weren't afraid of calling him out on it, but then you had a respectful dialogue. And I think this is I always say this is why you never want to burn a bridge. People can disagree and actually build respect through disagreement, but if you write a fiery you know email off, you you can often never get never get that back. Well, I think the the recommended approach is first you write the fiery email and then and you, you, you say it. what you and then you delete it. Say, okay, got that out of my system because no, it, it is easy, especially when I'm when I'm writing about other people's ideas, especially if I'm writing critically about other people's ideas. I mean, look, it's easy to make someone look stupid, especially with sort of you know you, you pick a few selective quotations and you, you know you and if you make some good jokes, you can be a jerk about someone and it's funny and and 
I read when other people do that and I, I laugh. Uh, and I have the temptation to do that myself and I try and avoid it. And like you said, this is a good example of, of why, because I could have been really critical. Like I could have tried to make Malcolm look silly, not that I necessarily would have succeeded, but I could have tried. I could have been mean about it. Instead, I was just like, I'm not sure I agree with what Gladwell wrote here. Here's, here's what I think. And that led to uh, a situation where we, I think we both had a, an interesting discussion. And so, yeah, but it is, especially, it's one thing writing about it. It's another thing on like social media where there's, you know, everyone has an opinion and some of them are quite abrupt and to the point. And it's always tempting to reply and just try and, especially when someone, you know, makes a mistaken assumption or makes a mistake to really shut them down and say, hi, you see what an idiot you are. And sometimes I do that by accident, but, or not by accident, but sometimes I let myself do that. But for the most part, I, I really try to just remember, hey, if someone says something wrong, I can correct them without making it into a war between me and them. I can express my opinion without starting a war. Yeah. And, and it's just a good learning. I mean, I, I, I publish a lot. I write a lot of articles. They're on LinkedIn. People jump in and respond where obviously it's not even about them. And, you know, this is the dumbest bleeping thing I've ever written. And, and I'm looking at this being like, if I worked at this person's company, I would really just not trust their judgment anymore <laughs> too, in terms of, you know, their, their willingness to jump. It, it just doesn't, it might feel good in the long run, but I, I just think it's a really, I mean, in, short, in the short run, but I think it's a really silly, short-sighted thing to do in the long run. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you, when, when someone has, you know, comes out firing from the hip to tell me what a total moron I am, I, I click on the link, I'll, I'll say, who is this person? Like, where do they come from? I don't want to make, my sound, make it sound like I sit here on my computer all day, like, make, <laughs> drawing up an enemies list, but, I, you know, I am interested. And if, if they're from a company, like, yeah, you can find out a lot about a person with, with like, 10 seconds on Google, and you're like, wow, this person from such, such, such and such a company. I mean, I've, I've had, like, articles where I've written critically about technology in the fitness space and then there's you know some random guy will be like what a dumb article blah 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 i'll google the guy i'm pretty good at google you know and i find it yeah. hey this guy's a consultant for the company i was criticizing he was trying to do it below the radar but you know what i can get past that by you know googling your name figuring a few things out so it's uh yeah i i, I do agree you got to think about not just what's the right thing to do as a human but uh what's the right thing to do strategically well, you, you and Gladwell clearly bonded over over running, and you're also both prolific writers. I was actually fascinated to see that you started your career as a physicist, I think it, it was. So I'd, I'd love to hear the fork in the road that led you on a path to journalism and writing from starting as a physicist. Yeah, it's, it's, it mystifies me a little bit too when I look back and I try and remember what, what was that train of thought? Like, how did I, how did I do that? Because I, so yeah, I, I did a PhD in physics over in Britain. And then I did a, some postdoctoral research uh, with the National Security Agency in, in Maryland, based at the University of Maryland. So I was in my late 20s working as a physicist and kind of on the path to a, a physics research and academic research career. But it just wasn't... When I think back, there, I, I can remember the sort of sensation of working some pretty long hours, you know, being in the lab till 9, 10 at night, and then coming in the next morning and having a coworker say something like, "Hey, Alex, did you did you see that that article about such and such a thing in in physics today?" And me thinking like, "Are you kidding, dude? We we were here at the lab till six hours ago. The last thing I wanted to do when I went home was to flip open physics today. Of course, I haven't seen. It. I don't even subscribe." A few of those sorts of moments made me kind of stop and think that those guys have a real passion for it and. Uh, I find it interesting. Like I, I had a good time in physics and I, you know, I think I could have been happy as a physicist, but I didn't have the same passion that some of my, my better colleagues had. 
And so for me, it was really about, and this was, these thoughts were happening around the same time that my running career was sort of hitting its, its final stretches where I was like, okay, I'm not going to go to the Olympics. And I realized, okay, for a lot of my life, I've been able to channel my passion into running. Like I've been working as a physicist, but my passion has been running. And that's not going to be the case in my 30s, 40s and beyond. I'm going to have to, that running is no longer going to be the sort of be all and end all. And so I want something in my life and it would be perfect if it could be in my career that can be my passion. And so I was thinking a, a lot about that and I didn't really know a lot about journalism. I, to be totally honest, I, I hadn't like studied it. I hadn't worked for student newspapers or anything like that. But it seemed like the kind of place where there'd be scope for following your passion. And to be honest, reading stuff by people like Malcolm Gladwell was one of the sort of catalysts of like, oh, journalism isn't just like who had a car accident last night. It's also, here's some interesting ideas. How do they change the way we think about how humans interact and so on? So I had this feeling that it could be a, a way of chasing whatever ideas I had passion for and that could change along with me that what that what I have passion for at 35 might be different than 45 and 55 and journalism would allow me to pivot in different directions as as my life evolved. And so I I, I took a big leap. I I actually I was starting to consider this and I applied for some sort of internships and things like that and didn't make a lot of headway and what I finally realized is that it wasn't going to happen just sort of on the side that I needed to kind of dive in the deep end and, and with no flutterboard and just see if I could swim. And so that's why I, I left my postdoc at the NSA, applied to grad school to do a, a master's in journalism uh, when I was 28 and, w- and went and did that just to sort of see if I could do it. That's kind of the short version of the story. There's Obviously, it was a very long process and, and evolution of thinking to, that made it happen. Well, it sounds like you made a good choice <laughs> in the end, but you weren't, you weren't writing about physics. So you combined the the writing passion with your personal passion. And I know you talked about the sort of getting through that injury before, but you know, for most people writing a book is, is also a test of endurance. And I, I think when we chatted before via email, you, you mentioned this was a writing endure was a long term project. So I, I'd love to hear a bit about your process to get through the whole writing of endure. And, and I, you said it was over a fair amount of years. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, when I sort of look back through my emails, I think 2009 is when I started telling people that I wanted to interview, like, I'm writing a book about endurance. Can I come and visit your lab and, and, you know, suck up a bunch of your time? And I'm sure a lot of those people gave up by around 2014 thinking, what, what was that doofus doing? Like, there's been no book. What? So one thing that I was able to do was to work on my daily journalism, which pays the bills or my monthly, you know, my regular journalism in parallel with the book and have it overlapping. So once I decided that I wanted to write a book that really explored what are the limits of endurance and how do we push them, I was able to write articles for Runner's World and for Outside and for other magazines where I was like, you know, send me to South Africa and I'll go visit this lab or send me to Britain and I'll check out the, you know, this scientist doing this cool research. Uh, and just, and, and even aside from trips like that, just on a, on a, daily and weekly basis, write article after article about new studies coming out about endurance. So all this time I was kind of building in my head, I was working on the book, but I was getting paid for that, which is not an, not a minor thing. Like to be honest, it's, uh, you know, I have a wife and I now have two kids and uh, my wife was in school at the time. So I didn't have the option of just hibernating for 10 years with no income. So I was lucky that I, that I had good editors who were willing to let me 
chase these stories. But at a certain point, and I kept sort of waiting until I sort of knew everything about endurance to write my book. And, and after sort of six or seven years, I realized it's never going to end. There's not some final answer that I'm going to get to. So at a certain point, I have to just stop doing more research and, and digging up more threads. I have to actually write. And that was the real hardest part of the book. And I would say that was about... Actually, you know, the the, real, the sticking point that, that sort of delayed me for about a year was trying to figure out what the book should be about, because I had this ton of information about how it should be structured. So it took me probably close to a year before I settled on a structure. So, because I had to create a book proposal to send to my agent, to send to publishers. So that's sort of, you know, maybe 5,000 to 8,000 words. And the, the hardest part of that was figuring what is the chapter structure going to be? Like, what do I want to say? Where do I want, where do I want this book to start and where do I want it to end? That took a long, a long time. And then writing the book itself, I budgeted a year for it. I probably took more like 18 months. Uh, and that was, you know, the cliche is you just have to get your, get your butt in the chair. And, that, and that, that took a lot of time too. Shortening it is the hardest part, right? The Mark Twain quote. Yeah, well, well, I mean, you you had that email about the, on the art of brevity not too long ago, and it's like, yeah, yeah I struggle with that all the time because I, I do a lot of writing for online now. So a lot of my writing for outside magazine is for the website rather than print. And with, when it's print, it's like there's a thousand words, and a thousand and fifty words is not appropriate because you know there's no room on the paper. So there's a, a real discipline to that. But what I've noticed is now that I'm online, I'm like. Well, I can always fight if they think it's too long or too complicated or too, you know, digressive. Come on, it's just pixels. Like, who cares? But it's like you realize if you have a certain thing, amount of things to say and you take longer than you need to to say them, you lose people. And so it's, it's a discipline that I'm sort of fighting with because it is easier to write long, that's for sure. All right, last question that we love to ask everyone. On a, on a personal note, what's a mistake or failure that you've learned the most from? And, and you, can, you can pick personal or professional. I guess I would actually return to a theme I was sort of talking about earlier. I think a big, big thing for me was not making the Olympics. And, and there's a cliche from everyone who's in an endurance sport or any sort of sport that it's a metaphor for life and you learn from the successes and failures. And for me, there was a, there was a real kind of stepwise progression where every time I broke through to a new level, I would initially fail at that level. You know, the first my first time at nationals, the first time qualifying for the national championships, I just ran like crap. You know, I was overwhelmed by being there. And then the next year I came back and was ready to compete at that level. So there was this sense that you fail and that helps you succeed. But eventually that comes to an end. And so for me, again, it was for the 2004 Olympics or Olympic trials rather, realizing, okay, this is it. There's no like, I come back in 2008 and this time I make the Olympics. It's like, I took my shot and I'm going to have to wrestle with this fact that I devoted a really, you know, a good decade of my prime years to where totally focused to trying to make the Olympics and I didn't do it. And as I said, this was around around the same time that I was wrestling with what I was going to do with the rest of my life and whether I would stay in physics, whether I'd do something else. And in a way, I think... What was important for me was the realization, as I, as I accepted that the Olympics were not going to happen, that to my surprise, I realized I was totally okay with it, that I didn't have any regrets. Like I had done some, you know, I'd spent a year and a bit in my mid-20s not working, just living with my parents, like being a bum, running full-time, trying to make that work. So I'd really put a lot into running. And and the, you, you hear a lot... There's sort of two schools of thought on that, right? Like some people are like, that's so cool. You were chasing your dreams. And there's other people like, wow, what a waste of time. And what I realized is that I had zero regrets about having 
put everything into trying to make the Olympics. I mean, sure, I would have liked to make it, but it was totally worthwhile being all in on something, trying to pursue something with a worthwhile goal that made all the effort and sacrifice worthwhile. And so that's what I think provided me with the nudge that that gave me the courage to say, yeah, I'm going to try, I'm going to go into journalism because I can envisage that sort of career working out in a way that is worth chasing, even if I don't make it. So again, coming back to the failure idea, that what I realized with journalism is that, and by learning from my experience with trying to make it to the Olympics, was that I could embark on a really hard quest and more or less be satisfied and consider it a, you know, a good decision, even if I didn't succeed. That it wasn't all about failure, that being embarked on a worthwhile mission, it can still be fun, even if you don't make it. And so the truth is things have worked out as you know better than I could have ever hoped as a journalist. But even if I was still, uh, you know, well, I don't want to judge other other types of reporting, but even if I was, even, even if I was covering car crashes and stuff, which is not what I sort of really enjoyed as much, that it would be worthwhile because I was trying to pursue something because there was a worthwhile goal at the top. I was w- totally willing to accept the risk of failure. And that's, I think that's what I learned from failing to make the Olympics. That's a great answer. And I think people will take a lot out of that. So thank you for sharing that. Alex, I really enjoy your research, your writing, and your perspectives around endurance and fitness. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks, Bob. It's great to kind of have a chance to talk about these things in a, in a larger context and see how they draw connections to other, other parts of the world. All right. For those of you listening, thank you for tuning in to the Outperform podcast. We will include links to Alex's book page, along with an interesting book interview he did with Malcolm Gladwell in our show notes and other resources that you may find helpful. Until next time, keep outperforming. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.